0: I'm George Lavender, one of the producers of Making Contact. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We release a show about a different issue every week, but you can join the conversations happening right now on the Making Contact Facebook page, and on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Thanks a lot. Here's the show.
1: I was such a hippie when I was in school. Oh my God, before I joined the Marine Corps, it was actually hilarious. Everyone was so surprised that I joined the Marine Corps because I was always that kid that was like, the government, man, the government's trying to bring you down, man. They're oppressive and freedoms, and man. And then, and then all of a sudden, I was in a Marine uniform with boots on, and everyone was like, whoa, hold on. What's, what's going on here?
2: What's it like to be a student who's fought in a war? Producers Zandra Clark and Natasha Rock asked six Stanford students and recent alumni, all veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, to tell their stories. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and on this edition of Making Contact, we bring you Returning Home, produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project.
0: Well, I decided to go when I was like two, so... No, I'm just kidding. But I did decide to go when I was really young. But when I decided to enlist, I was... Seventeen.
3: I actually had never heard of West Point until I was a sophomore in high school, and most kids from my school, if they go to college, or you know, a lot of them go to Ivy Leagues or, or pretty you know, nice colleges. And I just wanted something different. I was kind of, um, I wanted something challenging.
4: If I was going to do something as stupid as join the military as a chubby kid from the suburbs, that I was at least going to do the hardest branch of the military, right? My brother had one buddy who was a mortarman. Um, Marine mortarman, and he was a real, he was a real badass, and he was sort of kind of laughed at me when I told him I wanted to join the Marine Corps, which is exactly the response that you want. It's a very interesting self-selection when, if a guy tells you you could never do it, and you go do it, well, it's of course you could be a good Marine.
5: Anyone in my family, I would never let them join the military, would never wish for them to join the military, unless they were like at their
6: last, at their last straw, you know what I mean? It was either like military or prison. I wanted to go, and for me, the the West Point you know, uh, way of life, the, the history, the prestige, the opportunity, it, it just, it always clicked for me. You know, I can't speak for other people, but the way I saw it was I was going to spend four years here, graduate, and then go take a unit in Germany and golf on the weekends, and that would be just about it.
1: The, the best way that I can describe it is that our country was going to war, and I was 18, 19 years old of sound body and mostly sound mind, and there was no way that I was staying home. Boot camp is exactly what you think it is. It's, oh, it's hell on wheels. It's terrible. Um, I stopped having nightmares about Iraq a long time ago. I still have nightmares about boot camp.
3: Freshmen at West Point um, were called plebes and you're basically, you know, the dirt. And, you know, the, the minute your parents leave, and they give you 90 seconds to say goodbye to your parents at one point, and then they just start yelling at you. And from there, you know, they shave everyone's head, and you're up at four every morning, you're just constantly getting yelled at for the tiniest things. You're not
1: even allowed to use first person pronouns anymore. You have to say, this recruit. And you have to talk about your fellow recruits. You can't say him or me or anything like that.
3: And you can't talk or um, really act like a human being in public. You have to be walking like at 120 paces per minute with your hands cupped and your head and eyes straight forward, and you can only greet upperclassmen.
5: But like they would just do ridiculous things, but you, you can't do that. That's not legal. You can't do that to somebody. And uh, But they would get away with it, and you would just have to like just take it. There were several of us that were in our mid-20s and late-20s, and we had a much better time adjusting uh, than some of the younger guys who were 18. Uh, just had a horrible, horrible time. Uh, I mean, we had a lot of people like, try to commit suicide, people try to run away.
6: Yeah, I had prepared myself for, for that um, you know, particular environment that I'm just going to approach it like a robot. I have no emotion, not going to let anything get to me. I get a command, I do the command, I get the next command. That's it and uh, i i found that that mindset helped me and and you'd be um uh, it's a little bit i've never been to prison but i would imagine that uh it is something of that uh that type of lifestyle
1: it's not as physically demanding as you think it might be although you've never done anything in your life as physically demanding as this but what it is is they mentally break you down they absolutely they they take from you every single piece of your individual identity and they make you work as a team,
5: so in one way it's like horrible because you're stripped of everything that made you you, but then another way, it's actually very like equalizing because then everybody's the same like there's no black, there's no white. You literally lived and slept and showered and ate with like twenty replicas of yourself the
4: general instructors and, and your other recruits and they don't let you fail um, it's it's really a it's a situation where I I needed structure in my life. I couldn't push myself in the ways I needed to, and it was after I'd given up on myself several times in boot camp I awoke to this idea of, oh, this is what it's like to really push myself. This is what it's like to defer gratification to a to a to a later date and, and a possible higher level. And this is what it feels like to give up sleep to help other people do things, to give up something else to help other people do things, and that and that's a whole other kind of reward and a whole other kind of lifestyle that. When it's it's addictive when you start to get used to it, the sort of self-negating, other-focused, with all this highfalutin rhetoric about honor, courage, and commitment, right? The the core
1: values of the Marine Corps. During the invasion, you know there wasn't a single day that was like the day before, and and the situation on the ground was rapidly changing because it was an invasion. And it it wasn't, but you know, a few weeks into it, that we had toppled the dictatorship, and things you know changed even more rapidly. So it was uh, you know, so sometimes there would be fighting, sometimes there wouldn't. Sometimes we'd be chasing an enemy, sometimes we'd be you know trying to secure some town. Sometimes we'd be uh, talking to civilian populations. Sometimes we'd be we actually I went sightseeing once. I went to Babylon, which was a heck of a place.
3: I remember my like the very first night I flew in. There was a a rocket that came in and exploded right outside the building. It was the very first time I was sleeping. So I woke up and I heard the explosion and the sirens go off. And when sirens go off, you're supposed to go down to the bunkers. So that's what I did. I like walked down there and I went to the bunkers and I just sat there for an hour until it was all clear and I could go back. I remember just like sitting in the bunker and thinking thoughts like, if a bomb's going to come and hit me, I'm going to be dead already by the time I come down, you know. So it doesn't make sense for me to be sitting in a bunker. I'd rather be getting sleep or, you know. So the next time, I remember a couple hours later, actually, that very night, there was another um, there's another incoming mortar, and I, like, woke up, and then I rolled back and went back to bed.
6: I remember getting there. that You're never quite prepared for it, but you're driving down the road, and we, we get to this, you know, little village, and it's on fire. Uh, and there are IP trucks all up and down the road, and they're shooting, and there are dead bodies everywhere. And, you know, I I had seen dead bodies before, like, you know, burying your grandma or something like that, you know, very clean and aesthetic, and, and here there were just parts everywhere. And the, you know, that expression, uh, pools of blood, you always think it's a metaphor. It is actually quite literal that it had been raining um, since that morning, and the, the rain had created these puddles, and there were so many bodies everywhere that were shot so many times that the everything was red, red and muddy, and uh, is what made that day difficult. Is that makes it slippery, and uh, when I was trying to get covered by this ball, I ran up there and slipped, and was sliding, you know, like a like a guy sliding for home plate through this, you know, sludge of blood, and I wound up next to this guy who um, was laying dead uh, on his back, and he was just looking off into his space. His eyes were still open. Yeah I I have no idea why I said this but I I slid into him my knee hit his head and I went sorry <laughs> I have no idea why I said that And that was day 3 and it uh and for for that to be day 3 and do 15 months there it uh it it was just a um, a very primal
0: experience. A suicide bomber drove himself into our building. Luckily, guys on the roof saw it, started shooting at him, killed him, and he detonated. But uh, his car was rigged really heavy with explosives. So it was really, um, it just it threw shrapnel everywhere. And then it busted out all the windows in the uh, in every building that we were in. A lot of guys like took glass in, the, in their body, which is essentially shrapnel. That's what shrapnel is, is just debris flying. And then, you know, I had some shrapnel in me that, you know, I didn't feel it when it happened, just kind of after the fact kind of thing, which is pretty common because of adrenaline
6: that was another thing. It wasn't too long into the tour where I killed somebody for the first time. And that, that was a very, uh, memorable experience where I'd, I was in a tank and, uh, we had an infantry squad on the ground. They were moving from their vehicle to, uh, another building and they were kind of, uh, out in the open for a minute. And we started getting fired uh from what looked to be three uh three people and a machine gun. And I I remember telling my gunner to get on that, get on that. And uh I remember when the sights lined up, my like, yep, that's that's the right target and uh started shaking and uh we got the breech block where you have to lift this handle in order to arm the the, the cannon. And uh, I remember reaching out my hand to to pull up the lever and it just wouldn't go. And it was shaking too much, so I had to throw, like, my entire arm and hook the lever into my elbow and just kind of stand up and uh, and, and jump to get it there, and I can never forget, uh, you know, all I had to do was say one word, and I looked at, down the sides, and I just said, fire, and whoom, and I saw, you know, just a black cloud that exploded horizontally, and I thought, holy shit, I just killed some people, and it, uh, I didn't feel too excited. I didn't feel regret. I definitely didn't feel bad for them. I mean, they're, they were shooting on my guys. I mean, it's a, it's a no brainer, but you know, it wasn't a real high five moment. It just was very, um, stoic. It was very devoid of any color of any kind. It was just an empirical scientific event. You were here one second and now you're not. Sorry about that.
0: staying at a village in the Alambar province in like 2006 or 7, and uh, we had been uh, talking to this one particular couple of families for a while. And I mean, I don't uh, a while, I don't know what that means, a few days maybe. And I think we were staying in their house or nearby, but we were talking to them on a consistent basis. So, we ended up having to leave for a little bit to do, uh, to do something in a different area. So we left for maybe five days a week, and then we came back to that same village. And, um, the family had been murdered and, uh, I kind of remember coming back in and, uh, seeing the houses that looked like they had been burnt. Usually they sleep outside when it's hot out in the summer. The families a lot of the time do because it's a lot cooler outside than it is in the homes. And so they had been, you know, you could see where their pillows were and they had been shot and executed in their sleep. And there was kids in the family and then they'd been dragged inside and then their whole you know their whole house was just on fire so i mean by the time we got there it must have been on fire for a couple of days cuz the whole thing was just kind of scorched and the fire was out and uh it's i mean it's definitely sad you know you have little kids getting killed and then and then set on fire that's not a nice story but i mean at the time if i'm remembering correctly i don't i don't think i mean i definitely didn't like shed tears over it That sounds bad, but you know, when you're in that environment on a consistent basis, I mean, it would take a lot, you know.
2: You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now let's hear some more of Returning Home, produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project for their podcast, state of the human.
7: When he came back, his mom and dad and his sister and me, it was us four, we were all waiting and it was at night. There was a band playing and we were on like short little stadium seats and Uh, the buses you would see them pull up but you had no clue which one he was in and you would just be you know eyeballs just peered out just trying to grab anything that looked like him and I actually I picked him out because I growing up with him like I knew exactly his silhouette I knew the way he walked I knew the shape of his head Um, so even in the dark I could pick out which one he was and as soon as they basically said free to go I just, I tried making a beeline and I just grabbed him like a koala, but I, I still have that picture and it's just, whoosh, just complete. My God, it's finally over. Like, like, I can actually feel you.
6: You know, your most important relationship with my wife, you know, that is, um, I wouldn't say, it, it has been changed. I mean, a, a lot of times, uh, part of the struggle to to get back is to tell her that, you know, that the guy you married was killed in action. The the guy who came back is a, a totally different person. So, you know, that she she's definitely made a, as much a sacrifice for whatever cause it is you think that we're believing in to, for uh, for whatever. She she owns us as much of it as I do because it it has definitely a, been a challenging thing for us. But I mean, we're still together, which is a pretty big accomplishment considering that in the Army, I don't know what our divorce rate is, but I'm pretty sure it, uh, it is substantial. It's right up there with our suicide rate.
3: My, my ex husband said the deployment changed me. Um, I think obviously it's not very objective, but I didn't think it changed me that much. <laughs> I don't know, but I think I was um, maybe you know a little less patient and my views on a lot of different things had probably changed.
5: Your family knows you. They, they knew how weak you were and how dumb you are, and, and they, know all your, um, they know all your flaws and all your weaknesses. And especially my mom. She knows these things. She knows me intimately. She knows, all, you know what I mean? And, and it's funny being over there, and the ridiculous amount of responsibility and freedom you have operating overseas. And especially in the situation I was in, I mean, I'd be in charge of millions of dollars worth of equipment and, and, and several people's lives, and it was so weird coming back, and your family still sees you as kind of the, you know what I mean? I'm like, I'll always be the rebellious teenager, I think, to my parents, no matter what I do. So it, it, it's kind of like, come on, Mom, like I was a soldier, like
6: coming back to a place like this where it's so bright and sunny and, and you can walk on carpet and you can flush a toilet. Uh, no one will shoot at you. The roads don't explode and girls go to school. And it's, it's very, um, you know, all these extremely simple things that you really take for granted. They, they pop up at you every now and then, and they, they make you question your reality. Like is, do I really belong here? I'm actually like, it, it makes no sense. But I'm more comfortable over there. I understand how how things work in the jungle. And I just remember being very, very
1: reserved, very withdrawn. And it sounds so bad, but I remember, like, hating my fellow Americans because they were so trivial. They were absolutely so superficial and I couldn't stand it. You know, people being like, oh my gosh, the the water doesn't even really get hot in this faucet.
6: I got a D in my class. Like,
1: oh man, I don't even have that many songs on my iPod.
6: Oh my God, I got dumped.
1: You are killing me, man. Do you have any idea what it's like outside these borders? Like these people are living in mud huts the size of our bathrooms and have no running water. They they don't know where they're going to get their next meal half the time. And I never said anything about it. I would just sit there and like quietly seethe to myself. And I mean, I would talk about just small stuff, but I don't remember ever getting into a real discussion for weeks and weeks because I was just so, uh, so disappointed. And then I don't know, I guess all at once, I kind of realized that there's a, there's a bright side to that. And that's that we don't have to worry about where we're going to get our next meal or our next cup of water we don't have to teach our eight-year-old son how to work an AK. We don't have to do that. And that is a beautiful thing. You know, we shouldn't trivialize the poverty and the suffering that goes on around the world. And we definitely should be aware of it. And that's something we could work on, but it doesn't mean that we have to experience it to appreciate it. And I'm glad we don't.
6: The, the tarnishing effect is, you know, you can, you can scrub it all you want. You can talk about it. We could hold hands, you know, we could do counseling, but they're, the, the fact of the matter is there's just no cure for it. There's no way to undo what's been done. You know, some guys drink, some guys turn to drugs, others get into fights. Some guys go to Sanford and buy a motorcycle and that's how they deal. Um, but the, the way that, that soot gets in there, it, it works its way into the absolute most private places it can go. And, and uh, when you dream you'll be back in Iraq you'll be going through a village and you'll be alone and there's nothing to shoot every time you try shooting your weapon jams every time you try running you're fixed and you know every time you yell for help there's no one around to to help you and the however your your mind processes fear this type of sensation it you can it almost convinces you that there is something beyond a brain it's it's like you can feel terror as it exists in a soul without a physical substrate. It's just in pure, concentrated essence of horror. And, and you, you don't get it every night or else you'd kill yourself by then, but every once in a while it happens. And it's a place that is quite literally a hell. If anyone had any idea what really went down over there, they would never say, you know, thanks for your service. They would just say, I'm sorry, and leave it at that.
0: Within the reconnaissance teams, I was the youngest guy by a number of years, in my first team especially. Every single person except one had a college degree. And you know, I just began to notice that there was a huge difference in the way that they understood what was going on. I guess in the larger aspect politically more than I did, I didn't really know anything about politics or any, I didn't know anything. And I noticed that. And then during my second tour, I really got uh, motivated to
5: get out and go to school. I was just a regular civilian college student. uh, and, And that was really, really frustrating at first the fact that people didn't respect the the, the the teacher, the instructor, and the fact that there wasn't this like really delineated hierarchy of like when I speak, you do what I say. <laughs> when this person speaks, we do what they say. And that that took a lot of getting used to. If I have a professor, he's professor.
4: He or she is professor, or doctor, or whatever, whatever they prefer to be called. But I will not call them by their first name. That's the marine thing. You want to, you both want to give the person the respect that there's that they're due based on their position and experience and age, um, but you also are reminding them of their responsibility to you, which is to teach you. They're not your friend. And I think that's a important thing for a professor to be reminded of occasionally. Yeah,
6: I always sit in the back of the class, or, or I try to, you know, depending on the class, because I don't like not knowing what's behind me. I don't like being in uh, in crowds like the nexus or a cafeteria you're looking at people and you're, you're thinking you're walking too close together one grenade could take you both out you need 5 meters of separation
5: and I've I've been blessed to have some really 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 close incredibly liberal friends um, who have really opened up my eyes to kind of the broader picture and incorporating my experience in sort of this broader world
4: if people will ask me if I was you know if I was serious when I said I was voting for McCain. And the first eight weeks of the first quarter, I was still willing to talk about what I actually thought. And after losing a few friends in, in the dorm and discovering that not everybody was really interested in in an open debate, then I sort of shut up. But what actually ended up curing me of that was going to Spain when I went to study abroad in the, in the spring. And I took classes with the same 35 people, and I saw them over and over again, and I had a lot more of an interactive and, and intense experience with, with those students, including traveling a little bit around Spain as a group. And when I returned in, in the fall of 2009, one of the girls who went to Spain with me, she was an RA um, at, a, at a dorm, and she asked me to come talk to her students, and I, and I did, and I had a really good time. And I, but then I just, that sort of kicked off this fun little tour where I, I spoke at, I don't know, six, seven, eight dorms and houses around campus, and including Columbia. Bay. At this point, I was starting to feel pretty ambassadorial, always on my best behavior, always sort of you know, very aware of what I'm saying and what, and what I'm doing and how I'm acting. But going to Colum Bay was great. You know, it's the, you a know, vegetarian co-op, nonviolent social change, right? The worst of the garbanzo bean, eating, Birkenstock wearing, not armpit shaving, people that you, can, that you can think of. And they asked the most insightful and interesting questions. And they were, just, they were just really, really interested in hearing my perspective and in wanting to engage with me as an individual, and, you know, an adult to an adult, rather than Marine veteran to 18-year-old student. That was sort of in a, a great example to me of how I can never assume that I know what a student's thinking. I, I should avoid the self-censorship as much as possible and just embrace the, the, the process of getting to know each individual. Pain shared is pain divided, and that's, that's something that a lot of guys have a hard time learning. You need to go through this process of, of really sharing with others. But then the minute that you have a, a time when you're, you're sharing and it's the wrong person and it's not okay, then, you know, that's, that's a traumatic experience. And the worst thing you can do is open up to somebody about something that you've done and then have them judge you for it.
6: I think it's a lot how they make ships. You know, so they, they won't sink. They compartmentalize the bottom. So if if one well gets flooded, it's not going to bring the whole ship down. And you find yourself, you know, going through that experience, you start compartmentalizing where this, uh, this particular place is just going to be welded off and we're never going back there again. You, you've had uh, such an a increase in bandwidth. You know what it's like to see a little girl exploded into little parts. And then you know what it's like to give somebody their freedom. You know what it's like to you know, see an, uh, a well work for the first time in a village and have them love you. And then you know what it's like to you know have a friend one day and the next day you're putting them in something that is black and has white letters that says "pouch, comma, human remains." And that um, you know the the shift, the the violent shift between those ends of the the spectrum, you. You know, there, there are times where you hate it. And then there are other times where you feel like you might just have a superior vantage point on this whole existence that you've seen the, the total gamut of what the humans could do. You, you've seen, you know, love at its greatest, you know, where it completely transcends who your mom and daddy was is wherever you came from this unit, we're all brothers. And that I mean, in just such a literal sense of that, where. You would literally die in a heartbeat for any of them, and then you you experience love on that end, and then you experience a hatred and a vengeance and a rage that is just so consuming and primal and powerful that it overwhelms all the the logical circuits that you don't even have a choice in in the matter. They. They they have killed your friends, you killed your brothers, and now it's all your asses. Where it you you're just the fist of God. Where I don't give a dish whether circumstances put you in a crappy country or you know you're unduly influenced by A.Q.I. or you know it's unfair for you. Well, tough dish because you're gonna eat a canister around to the face now because that was my
0: brother. I would never take back having been a marine ever. It's the last thing I would ever want to do. I mean, I can't think of anything I would rather do less than take back having been a marine. But that being said, when you're 17, you don't think about how it's going to actually change you as a human being.
6: There are some military dudes and and gals walking around here. Don't be a stranger. If you want to say thanks for your service, that's cool. I'm not really one of those guys. Just come up and say, hey, period. What's up? My name's Joe. And I'll say my name's Russ. And then we'll talk about whatever. That's what's important. You have an opportunity for a unique friendship that you shouldn't pass up. So Don't worry about what you need to say. Just say hi.
2: And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Returning Home was originally produced for the Stanford Storytelling Project by Zandra Clark, Natasha Ruck, and Jonah Willingans. Music by Owen Callery. To hear all the stories in the Stanford Storytelling Project, please visit storytelling.stanford.edu. And check out our website, radioproject.org. That's where you can get our podcasts, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.